0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are told about another benefit of justification. The topic of hope in the midst of trials is discussed. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, The Hope and Privilege of the Believer, Part 3.
1: Romans chapter 5, we're going to read this and let me kind of tell you what to look for if you've been with us. It's helpful to have a reminder if you've not been with us and don't know what we've been studying. Through the book of Romans, God's laying out a logical argument here. First three chapters really emphasize heavily the fact that our sin has made us unclean before God and you are not okay. You're not okay. You are in need. You need to be made right with God. You need your sins to be cleansed. Chapter three was all about, here's what God has done to make a way for your sins to be cleansed, for us to be made right with God. The Bible word for that is justified. So when we say that, that's what that means. Justification is being made right with God. Chapter four then went into and showed, here's how you get this. So you need it. God accomplished this through his son and the work on the cross. But now how do I receive it? Chapter four is you receive it, not by you going and being good and earning it because you can't be that good. You receive it by faith. God will give this as a gift when we turn to him trusting in his son. Chapter five then very logically flows into here. Now, here's what you get when you're right with God. We can't just rattle off and say, we get heaven, we get eternal life. But it's bigger than that. There's more to it than that. So, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 are here are benefits, results of your justification. So, if you have turned to Christ like this, then here is what we get in Christ. There's a list that rattles them off. Just kind of look for them as we read through, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And here's the one we're ready for today. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only
0: this, but
1: we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Please bow with me. Oh Lord, our God, in order to see, understand, and then most importantly, be changed by the truths that are here, we desperately need your grace. We don't even understand how much we need it. Your word tells us that unless your Holy Spirit shows up and he comes right now and gives help in mysterious ways that we don't fully understand, then there's just no good that's going to happen here. So we understand some of that, but God, we cry out and ask, please come now. Lord, your people, yours who have turned to Christ, we cry out to you and say, we want more of you. We want to know you and we want to glorify you. So Lord, knowing that this pleases you, we ask, come and enable us to more greatly please you. Show us your truths, teach us, give us more of yourself, transform us, mold us into what you want us to be. And we pray, give us understanding. Any of those who are here, oh God, that has not yet, not yet realized their need, maybe thus far been ignoring you, God, I pray, use these truths this day, what's happening right now, the seed of the word being sown, use this, oh God, to be the day that they're awakened, that they're they're brought to believe, they're brought to turn to Christ and therefore be made right with you. Please bring that about, whatever every soul in this room, what each one of us needs, Please bring it. God, I desperately need your grace to teach. So please enable me and help me to do that. For the glory of your name, we ask it and it is through Christ we pray. Amen. We just found out this past week that two more pastors in North Korea um, associated with and being trained through the friend of this church who does the missions there two more of those pastors were caught. They were tortured. Uh, Their families were brought in front of them, executed before their eyes, and then those pastors were then murdered. It's a heavy thing to hear that again. I think one of the points that we need to make from that is This isn't a game, so don't treat it like it. The message of the gospel that the Son of God took flesh to die to make a way for salvation is not a happy add-on to your life so you can live as you please, but then try to get heaven. It either is your life or it is nothing. Another point we need to say is reminding us of what we've seen as we've been walking through this passage. We exult in hope of the coming glory of God. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to those believers and to you who are in Christ. Those believers, they're already counting it worth it. They're already seeing every affliction that they endured, including the ones at the end. They already see them as small insignificant works of God that has given them greater reward in the kingdom of heaven. It is hard to see from that perspective now, but this is what God's word is showing us, heralding for us so that we see it. But considering those believers and that agony, you know, men, We often declare that we're willing to die for kingdom causes, but we've got a soft spot when it comes to considering the torture and suffering of our family. Considering that agony. Do you find the first two phrases of verse three hard to say with confidence? We exult We rejoice in our afflictions. We believe the word of God. We are confident that God's word is living and active, but we need to feel the weight of these words that we're not simply talking about our cars breaking down. Sure, it includes that, but it also includes this kind of agony. We rejoice in our afflictions. Can we really say that? Now, I don't mean that as like an application question, like accountability. Can your heart say that? Though there may be some helpfulness to asking that. But what I mean is is the hope of the gospel really that solid? Is the glory to come really that great? Is the redemption we will have so full that it really will make afflictions like that worth it that we will rejoice that we went through every one of them? Is it real? The consistent message of the word of God is that our present sufferings, be they small or be they lions, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory And we will be glad for them. They will seem small to us compared to eternity, compared to the greatness of the reward the inheritance we'll receive, and compared to the greatness of the delight we'll have in God. And Romans 5 is telling us that your afflictions, your difficulties, the small ones and the big ones, you Christian, they are doing things for you that in the ages to come are going to increase your joy and strength. And it's also showing us that there are ways that it wants, God wants to use these things to increase your joy even now. That sounds crazy. How does it work? How does God intend to take trials, distresses, agony, pain, and make it increase the hope of your heart now? Well, that's the subject matter of the three verses that we're looking at here. So in the midst of this list of 10 benefits that we get from justification, this is the fourth one. So I've given you the list in the weeks past Um, We've seen that because we're justified, we have peace with God. We live in grace. We rejoice in hope of the coming glory of God. And today we're ready for number four. We can, we can rejoice even in our tribulations and our afflictions. So let's... Get started with this and work through and see how does scripture teach this? How is this possible? How does it work? So last week we saw that we exult or we rejoice in in hope. So the hope that we have, our, our confident anticipation of what we are going to have in the age to come in the kingdom of God that's going to come, that hope gives us joy. Okay? We exult in it. We, we glory in it. We boast in it. We delight in it. The Christian has anchored our hope in the coming inheritance we have in Christ. Now let me, let me kind of pause there for a second, leave maybe just a little bit off subject, but it is going to help us understand hope in general here. You probably have your hope tied to something. And and what I mean by probably is there are people in this world who are hopeless, meaning they don't feel any hope, but you'll know them. You'll know them by the misery of their hearts. It's just kind of human condition. People without hope are in the dungeons of depression, are broken, are miserable, And they maybe weep or maybe mostly go numb, but when you have your no hope, you're not okay. And so as you walk around this world, you do meet broken people. You do meet people that feel no hope whatsoever, but largely we're encountering people that feel okay. And so what scripture shows is they have uh, attached the line of safety that they feel to something there's something they've tied off to that makes them feel like tomorrow's going to be okay because of be it whatever it is whether be it their retirement savings uh be it the fact that you know people all the time are trying to steal truths from the bible and corrupt them reject the savior who brings us hope but then try to grab onto his promises they put them on coffee mugs things things like we we've heard those of the world world say things like I know in the end it's all going to work out. In the end it's all going to be okay. That's a corrupted version of Romans 8:28. The promise that for the believer God is working all things for good. I know that all things happen for a reason. That's trying to claim promises of God that only the Christian has. And so those apart from Christ, listen, it's not going to be okay. I, I, I want to say this to you right now. And I, I don't say this to try to be mean and things, but my, my job okay, is, is to warn you. It's, it's to try to point you to the truths of the Bible. I don't say this to try to be cruel, but if you reject Christ, it's not going to be okay. You are in a hopeless situation, even if you feel okay. You've tied your line to something and it ain't going to hold you. It's going to pull loose. If you attach your security to money, the day's going to come that money fails you. May not be in this life. You could die rich, but you will stand before the living God and you cannot pay him off. If you tie your line off to corrupted versions of truths of the Bible while rejecting the salvation that the Savior says that you need, it's not going to hold you because you're going to stand before the living God. And so here's, here's, here's what the Bible says that that's doing to not have Christ, but to feel secure and to tell yourself it's all going to be okay in the end. That's, that's what James one calls deluding yourself. It's feeling hope, but not actually having a hope. The believer in Christ The justified Christian has hope. You have a secure hope. But listen to me, here's the next part. That doesn't guarantee that you'll feel it. It's possible for a Christian to have a future, but because of difficulties, maybe not understanding the word or maybe struggling through doubts or or something like this, not to feel secure and feel that hope. So part of what I want you to see that the scripture is doing here is God is preaching so that you Christian will feel Feel that hope, feel the security and know what you have in Christ. It's also possible for a Christian to have a secure hope and have the little seed of hope in what is to come. But maybe I'd say more likely all of us have attached at least a few lines off to some other things of the world. And that's why 1 Peter 1.13 tells us to fix your hope completely. See, the double way it says that, fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's a biblical metaphor. The book of Hebrews uses this. It's, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's kind of like you're a ship and you've got an anchor and you need to anchor onto something that's gonna hold you. The believer is to anchor the hope onto Christ. You have it if you're in Christ doesn't necessarily mean the hope that you feel is anchored onto him. But with that kind of thinking, understanding these perspectives that in Christ you have a future, you have security, these verses can start to make sense to us of how we can say these things, how we can rejoice in our tribulations. What God is doing here, friends, is God is showing us how to handle adversity. He's showing us that in pain and loss and death and suffering and torture, your anchor is going to hold. Here's the metaphor from Hebrews. I love it. You're a ship. You need to anchor on to something. But instead of lowering your anchor, this time your, your anchor has gone up. Jesus grabbed your anchor walked through the veil of the Holy of Holies into the very throne room of God and he took it and he fixed it in that room. It ain't budging, nothing's pulling it out. So no matter how much the winds of storms of pain and difficulty come on us, your anchor is not gonna pull loose. So Christian, feel that, rejoice in that. Exult in this. It's not pulling loose. Your savior is never letting you go. No one's going to pluck you out of the father's hands. You have it. It's sure. So we should rejoice in it. This, this is what the text is preaching. We have here another of, of what we call a, a kingdom Paradox. Let me show it to you if you want to leave Romans for a second and jump to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be there a couple times today. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount and it's the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount or what we call the Beatitudes. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus says surprising things. So he says, you're blessed when this happens. And then what he says is surprising. So so watch it. Matthew 5, starting verse 3 there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Pause there for a second. What he's doing, he's taking something that by worldly standards is not a blessing. To be sad. To be sad to be poor in spirit and humility or he is speaking to Christians here. So understand this in the course of following Christ, if mourning comes into your life by worldly standards, that's not blessed. But here is what he is saying. You actually are blessed. This trouble you're enduring has given you a reward in what is to come. So you are blessed even if you don't feel blessed. Why does he preach it? So we'll know it. So we'll rejoice in it. So look, look down. This really becomes clear in verse eleven. Blessed are you when people insult you, that don't feel like blessing, and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So rejoice, but here's why rejoice. Because it is doing something for you. It is storing up something for your future. Great is your reward in heaven. So why do we rejoice with exceeding gladness? Listen, it's not because the circumstances are pleasant and it's not because in some weird way, Christians delight in pain. That ain't it, okay? Like I know a lot of times, especially here. We really like manliness here and beards, okay? So a lot of times we talk about that, that toughness and grit and courage is called, we're, we're called to this as Christians. But don't ever get this like idea in your head that like to be a Christian, I gotta be this like high testosterone guy who loves pain. No, 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 no. Wrong idea. We don't rejoice in pain. We rejoice in the productivity of pain. We don't rejoice in the difficulty or for the difficulty, we rejoice in the result of it. We rejoice in what our God is doing and we are confident that he is doing these things. We rejoice, I love this, this is beautiful, in exactly the same way that Jesus rejoiced in the cross. Hebrews 12, two, if you wanna turn there, I'm gonna read it to you. Hebrews 12, two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, watch this, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame? It adds in that last part to let you know Jesus wasn't enjoying the shame, enjoying the pain. What was his joy? The result. Isn't that awesome? Another way we follow Christ, he says, come follow me. Another way we follow him is Jesus exalted in his tribulations. There is a way we rejoice in our tribulations, not because of enjoyment of pain, but because of what the pain produced. We follow Jesus's footsteps when we do Romans 5, 3. We can rejoice in earthly unpleasantness when it means heavenly goodness. And now he's going to start explaining how it works. So look at, look at the phrase here, verse three. Let's, let's read through it again. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations knowing. See that? How do you rejoice in your tribulations? You got to know. There are truths we have to know. The Holy Spirit wants to lead you Christians to a place where you can have joy, exult even in difficulties, but he's not going to do that by waving a magic wand and poof, there it happens. How does he work? He uses means. What is his means? Lots of them, but it's the word. He takes the word, applies the word, uses the word, transforms us with the word. As we Christians have conversations with one another and we help each other see truths and apply truths to situations, the Holy Spirit is taking the word, applying it. And in knowing the truths, that's how we come to these things. So knowing, here's what we know. He's going to start to show us how it happens. Tribulation brings about perseverance. I think that that's pretty obvious. Trials produce Perseverance. Perseverance is when you keep pushing, you keep running, even when you are tired. It's when you're weary, but you keep fighting. Giving up is the opposite of persevering. But the whole point of persevering, friends, is that it is hard. When life is easy and obeying Jesus has no cost, that's not perseverance. Okay, the theological term for that is gravy train. Okay, it's not perseverance. That's not steadfastness. That's not endurance. Perseverance is saying it's hard, but you keep going. Trials produce this. Now, let me say this by kind of a brief sub point, but it is very much attached here because this is part of the subject matter of today. So so hang with me. When we come to chapters six and eight, we are going to see some truths. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you that I I believe for some of you are gonna have you unsettled. Maybe because of the way that salvation was explained to you, either wrongly or incompletely. But we are gonna see chapter six and eight and there are many other places in the Bible. Like this this is a very common thing shown in the Bible. Show us that perseverance is required for the justified Christian. Now listen. God is at work in every justified Christian to see to it that sanctification and perseverance is going to happen. In Christ, you are his project. He's determined to do things in you. Salvation is his, Philippians 1. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. John 10, no one can pluck you out of the father's hand. All of that is true. That's the heavenly side of things, the invisible side that we do not see. But to us, a command is given on our side. You are told to persevere and told that you must. The Bible says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Those verses unsettle a lot of Christians because sometimes they've had salvation explained wrongly to them. Sometimes there's that whole question of, well, hey, pastor, what about... Once saved, always saved. Don't you believe that? Okay, well, 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 listen, that is a biblical truth, but let me tell you that it is most often misunderstood and misapplied. A lot of times what people mean when they say that phrase, once saved, always saved, here's what they mean. Walk the aisle, then you can live like hell and nothing matters. That's usually what is meant. So let me give you a different phrase, okay? It's not as catchy. (laughs) The justified Christian becomes the project of King Jesus. And he will see to it that sanctification and perseverance happen and you will be finally and fully saved in the end. It's not as catchy, doesn't fit on a coffee mug, but it is more biblically accurate. Okay, So we have to, we have to comprehend what is a part of this. The truly justified Christian will be finally saved. But when the Bible explains that, it includes the part in the middle where God is at work in us. And part of that work is endurance, persevering. Here's here's another way of saying, how do we know who the truly justified ones are? Who are the people of God? They're the ones persevering. The ones falling away, they showed they were never in Christ, not justified and then fell away. They were never truly right with God. Romans 8 is going to say, how do we know who the true sons and daughters of God are? They're the ones putting to death the deeds of the body. They show that they are the sons and daughters of God. You might say, well, pastor, what about the justified Christian who doesn't persevere and who doesn't increase? That's Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster and Lizard Man mythological creatures which do not exist. The justified Christian becomes a part of the project of God and he is at work in us. But all of that is to say, I say all that to bring explanation. You are given a command to persevere and told that you must. We do so knowing that I can only do this by the power of God at work in me but I'm not going to sit my lazy butt on a spiritual couch and just throw out slogans as excuses. God causes us, tells us to grit our teeth and put our hand to the plow. We are commanded to persevere. So here was the point in saying all of that. Here's the conclusion. You need perseverance. How do we get perseverance? Trials. Therefore, see the logical argument here? You need perseverance. You get perseverance through trials. Therefore, you and I, Christian, need trials. We need difficulty. God is using them for His purposes. All right, here's the next phrase. So we're kind of working our way down here. And perseverance, here's what it produces proven character. All right. Now we got to pause here because we've got some, we got some wrestling that we need to do here with some words. Okay. This happens once in a while. When the text here says proven character, at least in the new American standard or King James and some of those, the most key word here, the most important word here is proven and not character. This is important. I know know you may think, well, this is just haggling over words. No, 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 this this, this actually is a big deal. And let me kind of just stay with me. I know it's hard to like zone in and stay locked in for long periods of time, but I need you to here, okay? This word, depending on how you see it, might change what you believe the text is saying. You won't come to heresy, okay? Because there are other passages who teach some various things here, but there's a particular point being taught here. The Greek word here, dokime, if that matters to you, you guys who love word studies, this is a good one. I mean, like this is a fun one to do this afternoon. It comes from a root word that means approved. This word is used seven times in the New Testament and every time other than right here, it's always given a meaning of something like approval. And even from the root word that it comes from, it's used a lot of times in the New Testament and it always has that meaning, it's provenness. And so, if you've got an ESV or an NIV on your laps and it says that perseverance produces character, that's a fine translation. I'm not claiming to be smarter than the people who did the translating, okay? But what I am saying is there's a certain way they mean character that might not be immediately obvious. What they mean by using the word character, character there, is sort of like if we look at a person and we say, that guy's got character. And what we, what do we mean is he has shown his character. So what this passage is not teaching, okay, is that perseverance builds a better character. That's a true statement. James 1 and other places teaches that truth. Persevering in trials is going to build you up in Christ and sanctify you. That's a true statement, but it's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is, Persevering through trials produces a provenness to your faith. It produces an approval. So research some of that on your own. We're still going to look through some of the things. What's being taught here, let me show you some of these. Is similar to a truth taught in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I invite you to look at it with me. I'm going to read it to you. But if you kind of see the words with your eyes, you'll know I'm not lying to you. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, talking about your salvation. Okay, so watch this. In this, you greatly rejoice. Sound familiar? That's what's happening in Romans 5, rejoicing in our salvation. Okay, so you rejoice in salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, watch this, so that the proof of your faith, guess what the word proof there is? Okay, that's our word from back in Romans 5 being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so what did he say trials do? When you endure through a trial, it is revealing something. It is revealing the kind of faith that you have. Do you have a faith like demons? Or do you have a faith like those who enter the kingdom of God? Trials reveal those things. Here's another verse that says something very similar. Uh, Right before this, the book of James, James chapter one, verse 12. Give you a moment to turn there. James 1, 12. Same kind of thing. Part of what I'm trying to show you is there are more places that teach this exact same truth here. James 1, 12. Watch this. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Huh? Sounds familiar. For once he has been approved, guess what word, okay? Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's what we're being shown here. Persevering through trial brings an approval of your faith. Let me, let me tell you another verse. Zechariah thirteen nine. you don't have to turn there. Let me, let me, let me just say it to you. Zechariah thirteen nine. God said this. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. So God says that when he sends his people through afflictions, here are two things that he is doing. There are probably 98 other things that God is doing, right? Bible shows us many things that God is doing in trials, but here are two of them. He is purifying and he is testing. What Romans 5 is teaching is not the purifying part. That's James 1 and some other places. What Romans 5 is teaching is the testing part. It is revealing the quality of metal. And actually outside of the Bible, this Greek word that we're talking about here was usually used to talk about the testing of metals to show what quality it was. So that's what we have happening here. So what's being taught here is that Christian, when you go through a difficulty and you walk with Christ, nobody say anything about perfection. Don't judge yourself harsh, too harshly here. When you go through a trial, when you go through a difficulty and you keep walking with Christ, there is faithfulness. You still want him. You are still, you didn't give up. You still want him, what that is doing is it's giving you a verification of your justification. It is authenticating your faith. Guys, think about it. This is exactly like when Jesus said, the fruits reveal the roots. Remember that? All this is doing is just taking that principle farther and deeper. How do you know if I have true faith in the roots? Look what comes out of the life. Look at the behavior, look at the words and weigh it according to scripture. So trials have a way of really showing what's going on inside. But let, me, let me kind of pause there for a second and also say this. You won't understand why this is a big deal. If I, if I say that trials give an authentication to your justification, you won't see that that's a big deal. And you might even have a confused kind of, well, who cares about that? You won't understand it unless you understand a truth that is even lower beneath that, a premise. And here it is. You can be wrong about your evaluation of your relationship with God if you flippantly give it no thought. This is a subject we talk about quite a bit because it's in the Bible quite a bit. You can think you're right with God, but on the last day, the day of judgment, the day you stand before God, find that you are not actually justified. You just deluded yourself. Let me take you to another passage. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. If you're a member here, then you know this passage by heart because we bring it up often. Matthew 7, this is Jesus ending the greatest sermon ever preached. This is how he brings it to conclusion. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Follow along with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. By the way, Jesus did not just teach salvation by works there, but he is saying what Romans 5, Colossians 1, James 1, 1 Peter 1, Romans 8, and the whole book of Hebrews shows that your life is the verification of your faith. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then watch, he gives some religious things that people might use as the proof that I'm saved. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name, perform many miracles. He says, those are not proofs that you are justified. Those religious kinds of things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, not you were justified and then you weren't good. So I kicked you out. No, no, no. I never knew you. You were never justified. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, so from this and dozens of other passages, this is why we unapologetically say, yes, justified Christian, you must persevere. You must endure, not because your endurance saves you but because it is showing, it is revealing your faith. One last verse from this section here, 2 Peter 1.10 says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Isn't it interesting that Peter wrote two books of the Bible and in both of them in the first chapter, he calls us to this. Not only does he say, make certain that you're truly in Christ, he says, be diligent to make certain that you are truly in Christ. All right, so how do we know? If it's possible to be deluded, then how do I know? Well, you don't make up your own rules for the game. You don't make up your own reasons for why you say, well, I know that I'm justified because when I prayed that first prayer, I cried I meant it so hard. That's not a biblical reason all of the passages that call us to warning, that tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, all of the passages, then show us, here's how you know. Romans 5 is doing the same. Romans 5 is showing, here's the authentication of your justification. When you persevere through a trial, you show a provenness. What Romans 5 is saying is that persevering through trials produces a provenness and that provenness assures us I really am a partaker of this hope and I know that I am. My faith has been tested and I wasn't perfect through the testing. Man, I had to confess that sin and that sin and that sin, but I follow Christ and I see evidence of his work in my life increasing. I didn't fall away. I made it through. I wasn't one of the seeds from the thorny soil. Remember the parable? This is the perfect parable. Of course, Jesus told it. It's the perfect parable. The parable of the soils. The seed is the word of God. It's cast out just like it's being right now. Every time the word of God is taught and it falls on different kinds of soils. You are all hearing the word of God in different ways. There's the hard soil. Those who just don't give a rip. And then there's the the rocky soil. Seed falls on it, springs up. Like this is the guy who hears the word and, and things start to look like, okay, this, this could happen. This guy might, might really turn to Christ. Like this is, this is gonna be good, but the sun comes out, beats down and it obliterates away and he loses interest in Christ. And then there's the thorny soil. The thorny soil is a particularly dangerous soil. It's the soil where the seed falls The plant sprouts, and man, there's a season of time where it looks good. This guy, this guy tells everybody he's a Christian. This guy gets baptized. This guy joins the church and maybe even starts serving in some ways. But then over time, those things like divided interest, the allure of money, the kids' sports, the popularity of the world, the just, ah, I just want to stay home and sleep in today. G- Jesus called it the desire for other things causes that man to drift away. This is the almost Christian that the book of Hebrews talks about. This is the man who thinks he's justified but has not truly turned to Christ and given time, he'll show it. And guys, let me, let me just tell you, this is the thing we're constantly pleading with people as we begin to see people take those first steps of drifting away. We'll come to them and we'll, and we'll, we'll gently start the warning process and, and it starts going. And a lot of times those folks kind of respond with, pastor, come on, you're never going to have to worry about me as though I'm on such a high spiritual plane, there's no danger whatsoever. And then oftentimes they respond with something like, that shows they think that falling away from Christ would mean I had to hate him or like offer my baby as an offering or something, something like really gross and awful. When don't you see falling away is losing interest in Christ. The danger is the drifting that then comes where just no longer you care. This is what scripture constantly warns us of. And also watch this from Matthew 7. A person can lose interest in Christ while still attending church. Jesus never said church attendance is the guarantee that you're justified. I can tell you that Drifting from church attendance and involvement in the church family is usually people's first step to falling away. But there are some who can keep up a delusion, wanting that reputation. You do realize there will be stadiums full of people in hell who at one time claimed faith in Christ. That's not my words and not my guess. Many will say to me on that day. And so it is an obstacle to your hope, the fear that you might be a deluded brother, a deluded Christian. So how do you know? How do you know if your faith is a faith like demons or those who enter the kingdom? Here's here's what scripture shows. God wants to give you a gift. It's a gift that first Peter calls more precious than gold. He's not exaggerating. God doesn't do that. God wants to give you confirmation. He wants to give you a gift. He's doing 98 other things as well, but he wants your heart to have assurance. Do you understand that's what he's showing here? You you Christian You who are in Christ, regardless of where you are, how weak, how strong, he wants you to have assurance and in your assurance to have joy. Now, there's some other passages of the Bible where God is working to take away assurance from some people who don't actually have salvation. That's what Matthew 7 and other passages are. But here and numerous passages, God is preaching so that you who are in Christ, you will have assurance and that is a sweet, sweet, gift and some of you know it very well because you've lived in the torment of obsessively worrying yourself about am I actually saved some of you I get it you 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 think this is crazy you think all this talk about worrying over whether or not you're going to go to heaven you think this is crazy because our culture has just hook line and sinker swallowed the rat poison of universalism Universalism is the belief that everybody's fine. There's, there's, a, there's a, a different version of, a, of everybody who's nice is fine. There's a churchified version of it. Everybody goes to church. As long as you believe in something, you're fine. It's rat poison. You know why rats swallow rat poison? They make it, they make it taste sweet. Our culture has swallowed the lie of universalism. And so maybe some of you, whenever you hear all this talk, you're just like, what in the world is any of this about questioning whether or not I'm going to be in heaven? Doesn't everybody kind of go, that's not what the Bible says. Many will say to me on that day. So I I just want to tell you that if you think all of this sounds crazy, I just very solemnly want to appeal to you. You're in a dangerous place. You're not taking this nearly seriously enough. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is a call to this. But you believers, uh, J.I. Packer said there are two kinds of sick consciences. Those who are too unaware of their sin and those who are too unaware of pardon. Some Christians have a disposition that they obsessively worry about their salvation and torment themselves. You are in company with some great believers of history. God doesn't want you to have it, but we understand how we get it. Jonathan Edwards, John Bunyan, we're reading Pilgrim's Progress, many of you in the church, drove himself Mad. William Cooper drove himself crazy with this thought. How do I really know if I'm there? Here's the answer God wants to give you the gift, breathe some sweet air of hope in knowing that you are right with Him, and your hope will increase. The sweetness and the strength of your hope will increase when you look and see, the Bible tells me I can have confidence. And it comes in this. Proven character, provenness produces hope. You go through difficulties and you walk with Christ. Nobody said anything about perfection. But you walk in faithfulness. You see evidence of his grace increasing in your life. Christian, breathe a sweet sigh of gratitude. And long for your future glory. The fire is meant to reveal that you're not fake. And for you to know it, and in knowing it, to rejoice in hope. God is working so that afflictions will actually increase our hope. So I'm I'm basically done. Let me just finish up. The text is meant to show just two things. It's meant to change how we think. It's meant to change how we think about difficulties and it's meant to sweeten and increase our hope. So Christian, go forth and apply. Go forth and apply this to your hearts. Don't stop until your heart sings with sweet confidence. If you're not there right now, Don't stop seeking, don't stop reading, don't stop examining until you come to sweet confidence and you are longing for that kingdom to come. Come to assurance. And if you have not yet turned to Christ, I understand you might feel secure right now. I understand you might be thinking in your heart, I'm okay because of this, 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 and this. I'm fine tomorrow because of this. But what I am telling you is that the Bible says every line that you are trying to attach your security and your hope to, it is going to fail you. Your health will fail you. Your money will fail you. And jacked up, corrupted versions of truths from the Bible invented by the world will fail you. There is only one line which will hold you and it is Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Oh God, uh, please take the feeble attempt here to teach these truths and now make them apply to us. I pray, oh God change our thinking, I ask God for the grace that every single Christian, you bring them to rich and deep and beautiful hope. Those apart from Christ, please, O oh God, show them their need, convince them and draw them into salvation, O oh God. Please bless us, O oh Lord, as we leave and go to live as your people. We ask this through Christ. Amen. God bless you all.
0: Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message titled, The Hope and Privilege of the Believer, Part 3. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.